12th of August, and you're listening to Kopi Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DVS Group Research. I am Taimur Baik, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 25th episode, which is a silver anniversary. But we will talk about a different metal today, gold. And to talk about that precious metal, the price of which has rallied by about 25% over the past year, we have with us today Shaokai Fan, Head of Central Bank Relationships, World Gold Council. He has been with the council for about five years. Shaka Fan, welcome to Kopi Time. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, great to hear uh, your voice and have you on the show. Shaokai, you represent World Gold Council, which as per its website is the market development organization for the gold industry. And the purpose is to stimulate and sustain demand for gold, provide industry leadership, and to be the global authority on the gold market. Now, in this show, we're not doing this to stimulate or sustain the demand for gold, but we are very keen to hear about gold from an industry leader, and we do want to know what's happening at the gold market. So I'd like you to indulge us uh, a bit. Uh, if you could first talk about the supply side and give us a sense of how much gold is typically produced in a year, who produces them, and how that gets moved around. Sure. Thank you very much. Um, I, first of all, very concise uh, introduction about what we do at the World Gold Council. We are the industry um, market development organization for gold. Uh, we have a general purpose to enhance and improve the gold market. And in, in my specific role, I actually do a lot with governments and central banks around the world, giving them information about gold, advising them. So I'm always happy to talk more about gold in general. Um, your first question is, is about supply, and I think that's a very great way to start the topic. Um, I think it'll be useful to start off with, with a visualization exercise. Uh, the best estimate for the total amount of gold ever mined is about 197,000 tons, which sounds like an abstract number. But if you were to stack this gold neatly, you'd form a cube that's only about 21 meters cubed, so 21 meters by 21 by 21. And the volume is just the same as three Olympic-sized swimming pools. So that, that's it. That's all the gold that's ever been mined in human history can fit into three Olympic-sized swimming pools. Um, with regard to new supply, uh, on average, about 3,000 to 3,500 tons of gold comes from new mine production every year. And another 1,000 to, let's say, 1,600 tons comes from recycled gold and re-entering the supply chain every year. So that makes total annual supply about 4,000 tons, give or take, every year. It does vary year on year. Uh, gold comes from uh, quite a diverse uh, set of geographic sources. The largest gold-producing country right now is China, uh, which produced just about 11% of total production last year. Uh, Russia, um, Australia, the U.S., Canada, they round out the top five remaining producing countries. But overall, gold production is spread out very evenly across all the different continents, somewhat less in Europe. Um, here in Southeast Asia, Indonesia and the Philippines are the most significant producers. And you asked about, you know, what is the production process? How does it get moved around? So newly mined gold ore is shipped from the production site to refineries around the world. And at these refineries, gold is refined to various different forms and standards. Probably the most well-known standard is the, the London Good Delivery Standard, which, as the name suggests, is the standard required for gold entering the London market. Here in Asia, though, we typically see kilobars more often. Um, as the name suggests for kilobars, it's one kilo in weight. So it's about 64,000 US dollars uh, in today's value versus 
about seven hundred to nine hundred thousand dollars for the good delivery bars, which are much much bigger. So in Asia, because you know the retail market is quite strong uh, for gold in Asia, we typically see kilo bars more often. In London, it's those large bars that are more often more commonly traded. And since gold is is traded across many different financial centers around the world, it can be settled in different markets. London continues to be the most important terminal market for gold. It's also the home of the Bank of England, which operates a vault that contains many of the official gold reserves of central banks around the world. But since we're here in Singapore, you know, I do have to stress the gold market is continuing to grow in importance here. Many of the major bullion banks have gold trading desks in Singapore. There's some excellent storage facilities in the city, and we even have a refinery here. So. With Singapore's position as the leading financial hub for Southeast Asia, I'm hopeful that gold will grow in importance for Singapore's financial sector as well. There is a refinery in Singapore. Wow. Okay. There is. Yes, in There's, Jerome. That's a great nugget of information. I really don't think most of our listeners were, would be aware of that. Um, okay. So stick with this uh, production uh, part of gold for a little longer, if you may. Um, is it? Very costly to produce gold and gold miners. I mean, how are they doing uh, in in terms of you know technology and resource intensivity of uh, pr production? Mm. It is generally speaking quite expensive to produce gold. The gold production costs can vary greatly, though, due to many different factors such as the the technical requirements of the mine site, for instance, or local labor costs. Um, many of the older mines are already very, very deep, and the deeper you go, the higher the extraction costs become. And also, please recall that it, it takes years of research and exploration and planning to decide on mine sites before the first ounce of gold is ever extracted. So the exploration costs have to be factored in, in as well. Um, the World Gold Council has done a lot of work in this area. Our, our member companies are mining companies, so together with these mining companies, we develop guidance on all-in costs for gold production that conform with GAAP accounting principles. And this helps to provide more transparency and consistency in, in looking at how different mining companies report their costs. The current all-in sustaining cost for gold production is about 1,000 US dollars per ounce. Um, and that information is publicly available on our website, including a data series that looks into the past. The gold mining companies, you know, they're, they're doing, uh, okay, I think, you know, the gold price has been pretty high recently, but of course, Every company has its own specific factors going into it, so I can't speak for all of them, you know, uniformly. Sure, sure. Um, but again, uh, very insightful. Thanks for that, uh, Shokai. Um, okay, move to the demand side. So this year has been characterized by a pandemic, an economic crisis, financial market volatility, and as I said at the beginning of this podcast, gold, of course, has had a quite a bit of run-up. Um, so from your vantage point, what kind of investor behavior are you observing and I'd like you to take some time with this question. So maybe you can touch on how it looks from the perspective of individual investors, institutional investors. And since your job on a day-to-day -day basis to look at the central banks, so tell us about central bank behaviors and also gold traders. Absolutely. Um, I completely agree with you. I, if I had to describe this year so far in one word, that word would probably be unpredictable. Um, it's been just an incredibly volatile year, and there may be many structural changes in, in our economies, the markets, our lifestyles even, that will be the lasting legacy of this pandemic. Uh, and you've already said gold is, has done quite well this year. It's up about 30% year-to-date. I'm sure your listeners have seen some of the recent headlines about gold surpassing its previous all-time high. It, it went over $2,000 an ounce uh, last week. And I think that gold's strong performance this year can be linked to several different factors. 
Um, the first is just general worry and uncertainty about the state of the world and the future direction of markets. But then beyond that, there's also the continued compression of yields globally due to massive central bank easing, which is a response to the, the pandemic. And then um, linked to that is the potential for inflation, both from the monetary stimulus from central banks, but also the fiscal stimulus that a lot of governments are pursuing around the world. So you asked about how gold um, is being seen by different investors. So let's let's start with institutional investors. And this is a group that's actually been making some pretty notable progress in embracing gold as part of their portfolios recently. Um, this investor segment as a whole has been largely underweight gold for quite some time. I think Bank of America may have said that global investor allocations to gold today are about half of what they were in 1980 in terms of gold's proportion in the portfolio. But if I'm a portfolio manager today at an institutional investor and I'm trying to assess the long-term impact of COVID, I'd probably focus in on a couple of major potential structural shifts. The first shift is that uh, yields will be just low and negative for a prolonged period, and that makes fixed income relatively less attractive and gold relatively more attractive. Uh, gold, generally speaking, performs very well when yields are low because the opportunity cost for holding that gold goes to uh, goes down. Uh, gold produces no cash flow, of course, so therefore when yields are low, gold, relatively speaking, is uh, less costly to hold. The second um, major potential structural shift that I'd be seeing is this prolonged monetary easing and combined with uh, fiscal stimulus and also just the global contraction in aggregate demand caused by the pandemic. Altogether, these factors might spark inflation, and we've actually seen some indicators of inflation tick up recently. Um, if I were a, a, a um, portfolio manager, I'd have to think about that as well. And gold, historically speaking, has performed very well in, during periods of high inflation and also stagflation, too. The third factor I'd think about is just the markets are very choppy right now. There's a lot of volatility out there, and that volatility is, isn't just financial volatility. It's also increasing volatility on things like geopolitics as well. The, not least of which is, you know, the worsening relationship between the U.S. and China. Um, gold is traditionally a safe haven aspect. It's it's done well during periods of acute systemic risk and has very little correlation to other risk assets. So if I'm looking for an asset that can help manage risks, gold can be a solution for that problem as well. All of these factors are generally supportive of gold, which is maybe a reason that many institutional investors have publicly announced new allocations to gold in recent months. And it's also reflected in the massive inflows we've been seeing into gold-backed ETFs, which are a very common way for institutional investors to access gold. Now, I, I've spent a lot of time on institutional investors. I don't want to neglect the other parts of your question. Uh, another major class of gold investors is, is, of course, central banks, which is the segment that, that I, I interact with the most personally. Um, central banks hold gold as part of their official reserve assets, uh, which are used to help maintain the value of the currency, boost confidence in the economy, etc. Gold forms a major part of global reserve assets. It's about 13% of total reserve assets around the world, which actually makes it the third most widely held reserve denomination after the U.S. dollar and the euro. Now, central banks have been net buyers of gold for over a decade now. Um, in fact, 2018 and 2019 were the highest and second highest years for central bank gold buying um, respectively, since the end of the Bretton Woods system in the 1970s. This year, 2020, central banks have continued to be net gold buyers. They added about 230 tons of gold in the first half of the year. That's down compared to last year's record high numbers, but actually it's roughly average compared to the last 10 years. And I think the pandemic has forced central banks to focus on ensuring stability of their currencies, their economies, their financial systems, 
And gold has performed well in doing that um, compared to other reserve assets. Can, uh, gold has actually done quite well. So it's fulfilling its role as a strategic asset that is liquid during times of need. And we expect central banks to continue to be net gold buyers this year. Um, I think finally that brings us to, to individual investors. Um, the factors that I talked about earlier, I think they're also relevant for individual investors as well who are deciding on their portfolios. And there are a, ver a variety of ways that they can gain access to gold, whether it's physical gold or gold ETFs or whatnot. And I know that here in Singapore, many Singaporeans can actually hold gold a gold allocation in their CPF portfolios too. Ultimately, though, of course, the decision to invest on is something that should be carefully researched. The World Gold Council has a website that centralizes all of our data research and analysis in one place at goldhub.com. And um, there's actually another website that we started recently because we also very recently launched the Retail Gold Investment Principles, which are um, an, extensive, an extensive set of guidance for investors looking to consider gold and you know looking to buy gold. And we have a site that's focused just for retail investors, and that can be found at retailinvestment.gold. So, you know, I think for all different investors right now, they are looking at gold overall. There's been a lot of uh, interest in gold, whether and that interest can be seen, you know, in terms of in terms of the overall inflow into gold. But also, we've been very busy at the World Gold Council. We've been fielding a lot more questions recently. So certainly the investor interest in gold has picked up significantly. Um, is the uh, trading volume also up or are we talking about a lot of price action on a slightly thin market? Uh, the trading volume, I think, has also increased, um, but uh, gold is, is not a thin market. It's actually a very liquid asset class. Um, it's one of the most liquid asset classes in the world overall. Um, it's just behind some of the major currency pairs uh, in terms of um, liquidity and actually ahead of major sovereign bond markets. I think gold is more liquid than the German Bund market, for instance, uh, more liquid than the UK gilt market. So it's, it's actually very liquid and it's tradable across different um, markets in the world, so it's accessible during many times of the, during most times of the day. Uh, I got to say the the website that you just uh, referred to, uh, goldhub.com. Uh, I'm just looking at it right now, and it's just some terrific charts, including with liquidity and comparison with other assets and so on. So good job with that, Shokai. Thank you. I'll <laughs> pass that on to our research team who's, sure. who made that. Okay, so I will stay with the, the question of, you know, gold as an investment tool. So, you know, we all know it doesn't pay any dividend, but as you pointed out, as nominal yields and bonds keep going lower, you know, of course, then it becomes on a relative basis attractive. But in the past, you know, currencies used to be gold-backed, and there aren't any major currencies uh, backed by gold either. Um, so beyond jewelry, I'm going to ask you a very naive question. Where else do we use gold? <laughs> Sure. Uh, well, you're right. You, you said that gold is not linked to any currency anymore. It's, it's a freely tradable asset now, and its value is entirely de determined by supply and demand, just like any other asset. Um, but it does have intrinsic value, um, and that intrinsic value comes from its, its rarity, its durability, its universal acceptance, its lack of credit risk. And gold is used in many applications. You already mentioned jewelry, and jewelry still accounts for half of total gold demand annually, but gold is also used in many industrial applications such as in electronics, in health tech, in aerospace, and these industrial uses of gold make up about 10% of total gold demand per year as well. So that's 50% for jewelry, 10% for industrial demand. The remainder of gold demand is the financial demand for gold, which is split between private investors and then the, the official investors, the central banks. Um, I think a big part of why modern investors value gold is because it's an asset class that behaves unlike any other. It has very low correlations to other widely held asset classes, which makes it an excellent portfolio diversifier. 
It has safe haven characteristics, which can, can help manage downside risks like what we're witnessing now. But in, in better times, gold actually exhibits some pro-cyclical behavior too because, like I said earlier, a large component of gold demand comes from pro-cyclical elements like jewelry and electronics. So generally speaking, those things are bought up when times are good. So that's what actually makes gold an interesting investment tool because it's just very, very, very idiosyncratic. It doesn't behave like other assets because it has both pro and, um, and counter-cyclical demand elements to it. Fair enough. Uh, you know, in my travels, especially in the Middle East, I have seen all these gold souks where people go and buy uh, the, 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 the bars that you were talking about earlier. Uh, people can also buy, you know, stocks of gold miners or they can buy like a precious metal mutual fund. Um, or, and you touched upon this a little while ago, they can buy a gold ETF. I'm sort of interested in how a gold ETF works and how big of a phenomenon it's become. Sure. Uh, you're right. There are many, many different ways to gain exposure to gold. You've already mentioned some of them. Uh, everyone has its own set of considerations. Uh, gold-backed exchange-traded funds, or, or ETFs, have actually grown to become one of the most common ways to invest in gold. Um, gold ETFs first appeared in the early 2000s and have now grown to become a major segment of total gold demand. Um, gold buying in ETF form has seen pretty tremendous growth this year as investors have moved into gold. They've, they're actually at all-time highs in terms of both their AUM and also the amount of gold that they represent. And just to give you a sense of how large the inflows into gold ETFs have been, just uh, the first seven months of this year, so year to date, um, we've seen 925 tons of gold uh, being bought through ETFs uh, in the first seven months. And that's already almost 50% higher than the amount of gold bought by central banks in all of 2018, which was the highest year ever for central bank purchases. And that was just in seven months. So gold ETFs have become very popular. Um, there have been massive inflows into it this year. And I guess you, you ask how a gold ETF works. So essentially, it, it's just a fund that invests in physical gold. And that fund is then listed on a stock exchange and has shares that can be bought or sold on the public market, just like any other equity. Shareholders then own a part of the fund, and that fund in turn owns physical gold. The price of the ETF is designed to track the spot gold price, so this gives investors a very easy way to gain exposure to the gold price without having to worry about management aspects like um, vaulting and storage that um, you know are things you consider for physical gold. There are many different gold ETFs available in the market, so I counsel your, your listeners to do thorough research on each different offering before investing. And there are actually some ETFs, gold ETFs listed in Singapore as well. Okay, but generally speaking, and this goes back to your earlier point about there being quite a bit of liquidity in the gold market, that the bid-ask on these ETFs are not particularly wide. I mean, it depends on the ETF. Um, there are some ETFs that are very, very big, and therefore they're li very liquid, and the bid ask is very is very narrow. And there are those that are not so big, but you know, they're they're they have different you know purposes in mind. They have different um, sort of uh, target investors in mind. The largest single gold ETF is the GLD ETF, which is um, um, a lot of institutional investors like to invest in that ETF. But then there are smaller ETFs. Um, which actually have smaller management fees, for instance, smaller expenses, expense ratios, which might be maybe more suitable for, let's say, retail investors or investors who just want to buy and hold. It depends on what you need. So like I said earlier, I think every individual investor should, should look at what the ETF offering is, look at the specifics of that ETF before making a choice. Sure, sure. Um, Shoko, just a, a sidebar. Uh, we have been talking about uh, commodities, particularly crude oil in recent podcasts. And where we sort of, you know, underscore that, you know, oil, you know, 
sort of, you know, pumped out in one part of the world can be very different from the another part of the world. Gold is far more homogenous as a product than crude oil, right? Yes, that's true. Um, um, yes, go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, that's true. It, it's refined, of course. So it comes out and there might be some areas where the gold content is higher in the ore that's that's dug out and some areas where the gold con content is lower. But ultimately, it's always refined to 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 its pure form. And then when it's um, in bar form, it, there are different standards that govern the purity of the bars. The London Good Delivery Standard, for instance, has one purity. There are different purity standards in different markets, for instance. When gold is used in jewelry, they might have a different purity standard because it might be easier to handle for jewelry purposes, for instance. But overall, it is much more uniform than than oil. Right. And I suppose the other big difference is storage, where right. you know, it can play a very big role in oil futures. We saw futures going negative earlier this year, I suppose, as you pointed out earlier, you know, you can pack a lot of gold in a very little bit of space. So that is not an issue. That's right. That's not an issue for the most part. There's no real storage constraints like we see with oil. Um, in the gold market right now. Correct. Um, I want to talk about gold markets from like, you know, geography perspective. I mm -hmm. know you mentioned earlier, you know, China being a large producer, but China is also a large consumer of gold. Then there's India, and mm -hmm. I touched upon the Middle East. Uh, the, these three parts of the world are going through very different economic fortunes. China sort of has come back from the pandemic and beginning to flex its muscles gradually. India is in the middle of the pandemic and suffering tremendously, and the Middle East also is, uh, you know, right in the heart of the infection outbreak right now. Uh, give us a sense of these three gold markets. I mean, depth, demand, that sort of stuff. Mm, sure. Um, you're right. China, India, the Middle East, they're, they're major markets for gold. Um, Actually, I think that the rise of China and India specifically have led to a pretty big increase, structural increase in gold demand since the turn of the century because both of these countries, um, they have strong cultural affinities for gold. Gold plays an important function during key festivals and milestones and celebrations in, in both cultures and in the Middle East as well. So China is now the largest gold market for physical gold. It accounts for about a quarter of annual physical gold demand. India is the second largest market, um, just under a quarter. They're actually quite close, both countries, in terms of total demand for gold. Um, but they're in different um, stages of recovery right now. Um, and because of the impact of the pandemic um, during the uh, first and second quarters of this year, there has been a drop off in, in gold jewelry buying and physical gold buying in both markets for obvious reasons. People could not go out to to buy gold in, in markets and, and in shops. Uh, but that's largely been replaced by the massive financial demand for gold that we've seen during the first half of the year as well. Um, you mentioned the Middle East too. The Middle East is also a major gold market, but it's, of course it's divided into several different uh, separate national markets. And Turkey is actually a very, very important gold market too. Um, in Turkey, gold is, is quite integrated in the financial system actually. So individuals can send gold to one another, for instance. Many people can um, have gold accounts with banks. Um, and even the Central Bank of Turkey has quite a, a very uh, a unique um, uh, system in place called the reserve option mechanism where uh, the commercial banks in Turkey can actually deposit part of their gold with the central bank with the central bank as part of their gold reserves um, overall. So um, I'd say in the last two decades there's been a general shift of gold demand toward the east and away from the west. It's not to say the west is consuming less gold, it's just that the east, the emerging markets, is consuming significantly more gold. And I think over time as these economies continue to grow as the purchasing power of their citizens continues to rise, these markets will, will still be major, major pillars of the gold market going forward.
Yeah, absolutely. Um, Shalkov, I don't know if you noticed uh, last week the Reserve Bank of India made this announcement where they have increased the uh, amount people can use um, uh, gold to back up loans. So mm. in the past, I think it was 75% limit up to the value that the banks could lend to people. They raised it to 90%. Uh, mm. yeah, so this whole LTV, gold back loan sort of stuff, I suppose is one of the things that the Indians have been trying for a long time because the country between the temples and people's homes, you know, owns so much gold. Right. And to financialize that is, I think, something that uh, the authorities keep on struggling. And at a time like this, when the country is sort of struggling with respect to credit intermediation, overall economic growth, uh, tapping into that reserve, I suppose, makes sense hmm. um, from, a, from a risk management perspective. Uh, so, yeah, I, I was following the RBI meeting last week and I picked that up. Uh, Shaokai, I want to ask you um, something uh, on a different track. I mean, we've talked okay. about the investment aspect of gold, um, but since you are representing the premier organization that sort of trying to advocate for gold, and you did point out earlier that the major producers of gold are not necessarily in Africa, but you mentioned China and the U.S. and elsewhere, but we do know that gold is produced in some parts of the world afflicted by conflict. Um, how does your organization promote responsible and transparent production and trading? Sure. Well, that, that's a very important point. Thank you for bringing it up. And this area is actually a key part of the World Gold Council's mission. And there are several ways in which we're engaging with these issues. In 2012, for instance, we launched the Conflict-Free Gold Standard, which codified a common approach by gold producers to assess and provide assurance that the gold that they've extracted was extracted in a manner that does not cause or support or, or benefit any human rights abuses. Um, last year, we launched the Responsible Gold Mining Principles, which is a, a framework that establishes what constitutes responsible gold mining and addresses key environmental, social, and governance issues that impact the gold mining sector as well. So, so ESG is definitely a major focus area for us, and the World Gold Council takes parts in many discussions and, and dialogues run by international organizations and the industry focused on ESG. And we're committed to supporting the mining industry to make a positive contribution to sustainable development as well. It, but it, you know, there are many other fronts in this in this topic as well. On the trading front, we work with many regulators and different markets to enhance and improve how gold is traded. So that includes issues like taxation, uh, macro prudential policies, etc. And then another major part of what we do is is just simply education. We educate investors and. Um, that's institutional investors, individual investors, or central banks like myself, just to give them as much information about gold as possible so they can make the most informed decision about gold. That is uh, good to know. And I, I wish you the very best of luck in, in pursuing uh, along those lines. Uh, very, very insightful uh, discussion, Shaokai. Uh, thank you so much for your time and insights. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was great. Uh, thanks to our listeners as well. Uh, Kopi Time was produced by Martin Tucky. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 25 episodes of Kopi Time are now available on YouTube and all, all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Have a great day. <laughs>